Good morning. And Merry Christmas. It's wonderful to have you all here. This is a, a strange feeling Sunday. We have a lot of guests and friends that we, we don't see as often. We're so glad to have you here. Um, and also missing a lot of our regulars. It's just a weird feeling Sunday, but we are so happy to have you. Uh, this Sunday is a little different than our normal worship. We did this last year for Christmas, and people really liked it, so we'll do it again this year, where we will do a retelling of the Christmas narrative along with a lot of Christmas carols. So, this may not come as a surprise to you, but... The story of the nativity, the story of Jesus' birth, isn't told in one clean line in the Bible. Instead, it's told in two separate bits. First, we have Matthew, who, who talks about Joseph first. And Joseph, we never told that they go to Bethlehem. They seem that they're always there. And Joseph decides to marry Mary and... And then the Magi come, and then they run away to Egypt. That's Matthew's version of the story. And, and Luke tells the story that they're in Nazareth, and Mary is the one who is told. And then they go to Bethlehem, and then in Bethlehem, the baby is born, and the shepherds come and worship him. And we've taken those two stories over the years, and we've combined them. And they fit well together. They don't contradict each other. They just tell different bits of the tale. And so we've combined them together and we've added some things. I'm, I'm sorry if I'm bursting any bubbles today. There is no donkey in the story. The donkey can still be your favorite character, but he's not technically there. But I mean, come on. If you had a wife who was seven, eight months pregnant and you had to walk 70 miles and you had a donkey, you'd probably be putting her on the donkey, right? I'm looking at my wife, and she's like, you better let me ride the donkey. I don't have a donkey. <laughs> I don't think Cuyahoga Falls will allow me to keep a donkey. I could call it a large dog, but the braying might give it away. Anyway, so we've combined the two. We've added a little bit to it. We've also reinterpreted some things, like three wise men. It doesn't actually say three wise men. It just says... It says magi, which is the plural of magus. So we know there's at least two, but they bring three gifts. So we say there's three. So as we go through the story today, we'll explore the characters. We'll explore the people. and We'll, we'll add some of those traditional bits. I'll probably mention a donkey. I might say three, three wise men or three magi. And I might add some other bits and pieces because we don't really know a ton about a lot of the people in the stories. Just little bits. Little pieces that we can pull out of the text and little bits and pieces we can pull out of what we know about ancient Judea. Actually, though, I will say, neither of the stories start with Jesus being born. In both of them, they start with the history that happens before. Both of them tell you about Jesus' bloodline through Joseph, oddly enough, who isn't technically his blood father, but he is the inheritor of Joseph. He is, he is technically his son as well. 
But Luke tells us of another story. There's actually three what we call annunciations in the narrative. An annunciation is an announcement. There's most famously the annunciation of Mary, where she finds out, but there's two others. And the first one doesn't happen in Bethlehem, and it doesn't happen in Nazareth. It happens in God's house, the temple at Mount Zion. So, it starts with Zechariah. Zechariah is old. We don't know how old, but he's old. And he's a little sad. You see, he has no son. And he is a priest. He's not the high priest, but he's a priest. He is a descendant of Aaron, the first high priest of Israel. Since the very beginning, his family have been the ones who come in every day into the tabernacle and later the temple to make sure that the incense is burned, that the bread is in the right places, that the oil lamps are lit, that everything's clean. They are the ones who offer the prayers of the nation up to God. Every single day, he goes in to do that job. But this morning, there is somebody else in the temple. Now, that's not allowed. The only people who are actually allowed inside the proper temple space are the priests. That's it. And mind you, he's old. We don't know how old. Maybe 60s? Okay. It, it, you're not really that old. I, I'm looking at my mother-in-law. 60s, not old. I'll take that back. But he's old enough that there should be nobody in the temple he doesn't already know. He's been doing the job for like 40 years or more. But he goes in to light the incense as he does every single morning. And there is a man in there. Who are you? We have to wonder he asks. The man looks at him and says, you're going to have a son. God has heard your prayers. God has heard your pleas. And God is going to give you a son. Not just the son. He is going to pick up and bear Elijah's mantle. Now, a mantle is, you know, like a, a covering. And when Elijah left, Elijah is the most powerful prophet in the Old Testament. He is the one who brings about the three-year drought, or rather he announces it. He's the one who calls fire down from heaven. He raises people from the dead. And he runs around in the wilderness like a crazy guy. Sounds like another prophet who's going to come soon. He's going to bear that mantle. Zachariah's like, look, I'm not a young man anymore. I'm old. Not only am I old, but my wife is old. Obviously, she wasn't there with him. There is no way we can have a kid at this point. The angel goes, look. My name is Gabriel. I get to stand in the presence of God and hear the very words of God, which I then transmit to you mortals. God is the one who tells me how things are going to happen. You are not the one who tells me how things are going to happen. And if you can't listen to the words I'm telling you, then you don't get to say anything until the baby is born. And thus, Zechariah was made... Mute for the next nine months. That's what you get for calling your wife old. Well, 
sure enough, Elizabeth becomes pregnant. And she says, well, as the Lord's will. Now, she has a cousin named Mary. And this tells us just a little bit about who Mary is. First off, if, if Zachariah was a priest, then that means he's a Levite. Levites are the groups of people that, when the tribes are separated, given all their lands, they said, you guys don't get land because you're going to live a little bit everywhere and make sure that God is served. You, you will act as the in-betweens. So, while the other tribes tended to mix a little bit, the Levites kind of kept themselves separate. Sure, women could marry outside the tribe, but the men only really married other Levite women. So this tells us that Mary is probably of the priestly families. She probably grew up in the house of other Levites, just like Zechariah did when he was, you know, 60 years ago. And he was a little boy. He grew up in a family full of Levites. But she, she takes the message a lot the same way, too. You see, Mary is probably 15, 16 years old. 17 would be pushing it. She is old enough to be betrothed, which is fairly young in this culture, but not quite married. So that would be about 16, 17s when you get married. I'm sorry, I, I know I've, I've been a camp counselor. I've been around a lot of 14, 15, 16-year-old girls as a camp counselor. And thank God my daughter's only four right now. I don't have to deal with that yet. But imagine all the 14, 15, 16-year-old girls you have ever known in your life. One day they're out hanging the laundry, or maybe they're in their house. She's in her house making bread or something. I don't know. She's by herself. And then out of nowhere, this strange man appears and says, Lord be with you. You are favored by God. Who are you? Why are you here? She actually, the, the Bible tells us that she was greatly troubled by his words and wondered why he, she, he was greeting her like this. And he goes, you are going to have a son. Not just a son, you will call him Emmanuel. He is the Messiah that we've all been waiting for. She's just like Zachariah, though. I want to point out that Zachariah and Mary have almost the exact same reaction. That's impossible. To be fair, though, Zachariah was a priest, and he knew that, one, there should have been no one else in there, and it was probably an angel who had popped up. I don't know. Maybe, maybe you aren't supposed to believe that. I mean, if I walked into this church and there was some random guy standing in here, my assumption would not be that he was an angel. I would probably think he was just some random guy who came in for whatever reason and be like, hi. Okay, that's fair. But he also knows the story. He knows that Abraham and Sarah had Isaac at ages 199. He was 100, she was 99. He knows that story. 
He knows that these things are possible. But never in the history has there ever seemed to be a baby born in which there is no man involved whatsoever. How can I have a baby? I've never been with a man. I've never been married. Well, she was married, but anyway. Sorry, stop with the puns. I'll try. It's a struggle. Anyway. But Gabriel treats her a little kinder. Maybe it's because of her age. Maybe it's because she's the one who's going to have to carry the baby. And let's face it, let's not make the pregnant moms not be able to speak. That sounds like a bad mix. Really bad mix. Anyway. And so he explains, look, the Holy Spirit's going to come down and going to make all things possible. God is going to reach over and protect you and hold you safe. All these things are possible by God. Look at your cousin Elizabeth. She's advanced in age. I'm not going to say old. And she's having a baby. God will take care of you. And so Mary responds, I'm the Lord's servant. May the Lord's word be done. And then there's a third annunciation. Joseph. Now, he's got to make a decision. Now, Mary's pregnant, and somehow that gets out. Whether she told him, we don't know. Maybe she came up and said, guess what? I'm pregnant, and it's God's. More than likely, the way it, it comes through in the Bible is it became known that she was pregnant. Perhaps her parents were paying attention. I don't know about the jelly bean-sized Jesus and whether he gave his mother morning sickness or not. Maybe they were paying attention to the signs in the family. Don't know, maybe it was three or four months in and she began to show and her parents caught on. But for whatever reason, Joseph now knows that she's pregnant and he has a choice. He can keep the betrothal, he could marry her, or he could break the betrothal. Technically, he really should break it. Because if he marries her, that son who will be born will be technically his, and he will inherit everything of Joseph's. So Joseph's biological children won't get anything. That's a struggle probably for him. On the other hand, if he makes it in public, it will shame Mary. It may even put her life in danger. So he decides to do it quietly. I'll dismiss it. I will let go of the betrothal, and we'll just, just let it go. That's it. We're good. But we're not going to make a big deal out of it. Then he has a dream. And again, an angel appears. I can't remember if it actually says Gabriel in this one or not. It does not. One time Gabriel doesn't apparently get named. And the angel says, marry her. This is the Emmanuel. This is... This child which you will name Jesus is the Messiah that you all have been waiting for. The Messiah who has been promised to come of your line, of David's line, to sit on his throne. And Joseph wakes up and he just accepts it and agrees to marry Mary. Three annunciations. Three different reactions overall. 
one who just accepts, one who is absolutely incredulous, and one who just doesn't understand. And yet, this is the beginning. We can accept what will happen. We can reject what's going to happen. Or we can just accept that we don't understand, but it's going to happen. There are two babies coming. So Mary makes a journey. And, and Luke, we, we know she's in Nazareth. So she makes a journey down to Jerusalem to go visit her aunt. Or cousin. It's a loose word, cousin. You know, when we use the word cousin, but we mean second, third, once removed, twice high, I don't know. Her cousin, Elizabeth, which I'm guessing in her, at month six in her pregnancy, has had a fairly easy, quiet pregnancy, seeing as her husband couldn't talk and tell her how to handle it. I tell these jokes so my wife likes me. She's staring at me now. Anyway, should be used to this at this point. Anyway, so Mary travels down to see her, and she is now also pregnant. And the scriptures tell us that when the two women meet, the baby inside of Elizabeth is so joyous at the approach of Mary, who is carrying the tiny, tiny baby, Jesus, that it leaps for joy within her. The two women are joyous. And I know I read this every year around Christmas, and I already read it once, but I'm doing it again because I love this. Mary sings a song about who this Messiah is going to be. And I'm going to read uh, Eugene Peterson's version of the Magnificat. Mary sang, I am bursting with God news. I am dancing the song of my Savior, God. God took one good look at me, and look what happened. I'm the most fortunate woman on earth. God has done for me, what God has done for me will never be forgotten. The God whose very name is holy, set apart from all others. His mercy flows in wave after wave on those who are in awe before him. He bared his arms and showed his strength, scattered the bluffing braggarts. He knocked tyrants off their high horses and pulled victims out of the mud. The starving poor are sat down to a banquet. The callous rich are left out in the cold. He embraced his chosen child, Israel. He remembered and piled on the mercies, piled them high. I, it's exactly what he promised, beginning with Abraham right up until now. She sees and accepts the change that is about to happen. This Messiah who will turn the earth upside down. The Messiah who has not come here for all the rich and the powerful, but has come for the poor and the needy to raise them up and to remind those who have abused what God has given them that it's not theirs to use. They say that the only things that are constant in this world are death and taxes. 
and taxes was on Caesar Augustus's mind. He, after all, was the first real emperor of this Roman Empire, and he, uh, he wanted to make some moolah. So, he ordered a great census to happen, to count all the people, to figure out, okay, this province owes that much, that province owns that much, and so on and so forth. And so he ordered that a census be taken. And in Judea, it meant that people needed to head back to their family homes. And so Joseph, newly married to Mary, needed to travel to Bethlehem. This is not an easy journey. And over the last four weeks in Advent, we talked a little about this. But it is 70 miles. 70 miles through a land that is famous for its mountains and hills and valleys, and crevasses, ravines. So, he took his pregnant wife. Now, mind you, she has been up in Jerusalem. She was there for at least three months. She may have even had a chance to hold her new cousin, little John, not yet knowing that this man was going to be, well, a little crazy, (laughs) but in a good way. But she has made the trek back, She's probably at least six months pregnant at this point, maybe more. And she gets, and he needs to help her travel 70 miles. They may have done it on foot. I like to think that there is a donkey and that he got, she got to ride the donkey. But even so, donkeys are not the most comfortable animal to ride on. Let alone if you're pregnant and uncomfortable. And, you're, you know, six months, your body's really going through a lot of changes. I, it probably went half the speed Joseph normally could have gone. It probably, you know, maybe 10 miles a day. Frequent stops for, for breaks, for getting off the donkey, for walking a little bit, for using the restrooms. Slowly but surely, they made it south, passing through cities like Shechem and Jerusalem on their way to Bethlehem, the house of bread, what Bethlehem means. And he got there, and the problem was is everyone got there. David had a lot of children. He had a lot of wives and a lot of children, and so did most of his descendants, That's the thing with royalty. You have a lot of wives to make sure that you have enough sons to cover the throne. So that means you got a lot of descendants. And they all came home. The the word that's used that we translate as in actually means guest room. Inns weren't really a common thing in those days. It wasn't like you, you know, hi, my name is... My name is Western. I opened up my own inn, and it's better than my brother's, so it's the best Western. Thank you. I got a laugh out of Dwayne back there. (laughs) That was a bad pun, wasn't it? All right. It wasn't like those existed yet. Yeah, there might be a little inn here and there, but they would have been small. For the most part, when you traveled somewhere, you found a person to stay with. People would open their homes and give you a room to stay. And Joseph, he may have grown up here. He may have never been here before, but he went around and he probably went to relatives. And they were all saying, look, 
I've already given that one to Cousin Vinny. I've got no room for you. And so he keeps looking and keeps looking. And eventually, they finally accept a place, it says, where the animals stay. We, we often call it a stable. But for the most part, animals stayed on the first floor. When you went into your house, you climbed up to go to where you lived. The first floor was basically the ancient garage. It was a barn. It's where you kept all the animals. It kept them safe from, you know, wandering about and being attacked by the wild dogs and bears and wolves and whatnot. They may have actually been offered that room a couple times in a couple different houses. We don't know. Maybe they kept turning it down because they thought, surely there is a place that someone will open up where this poor woman can have a baby. But nothing does. I imagine Joseph going in there with the, the person who opened up the space for him and said, come stay here, I, it's the best I have. And they, they raked out all the old straw and they brought in nice fresh straw and threw some blankets over so you know, you're not being poked quite so hard by it. And in that place, this girl, I mean, you can't put another word on it. She's like 16 away from her mom, her grandma, her aunts. Maybe, maybe she has a local midwife, or maybe the lady of the house comes down to help her. They're in a strange place, surrounded by goats and sheep and cows and maybe the donkey she rode in on. There she gives birth to a tiny little baby. They have nothing for this baby except some clean cloths that they can swaddle him in and the animal's food trough, a manger, with some fresh straw and a blanket to keep him warm and safe. This place where the animals sleep became the first home for a new family. Have any of you ever uh, shepherded before? No? No one here has ever kept sheep or goats? No one's tried the shepherd cats, right? It's impossible. I've tried. There's a Mythbusters episode about that, too. Anyway. Shepherding in those ancient days was more complicated than it may be today if you have a farm. Because it's more like the free-range cattle work you might see down in the southwest, where you have vast land open up and the cows just kind of go where they want and you just bring them in. But of course, sheep aren't cows. They're a little smaller. And of course, this is the ancient Middle East, and so it's not like it's exactly safe out there anyway. You've got lions still, bears, wolves, Bandits, they all want a piece of that, you know, sweet, sweet mutton. So the job of a shepherd meant that you spent almost all of your time, nine months a year, give or take, out and about with the sheep, moving them from fresh pasture to fresh pasture, watching over them both day and night, 
hopefully you had a small group of you, so at least you got a couple hours of sleep. It wasn't always the most glamorous job. It's not the kind of job that you take if you like to keep your fingernails clean or you like to sleep well every night. You don't mind someone waking you up and saying it's your turn to watch them. No, it's the kind of job that you did because you didn't have a ton of options. It was more respected in ancient Judea than most other places because after all, they were descendants of shepherds. Abraham was one, Isaac, Jacob. Their first king had been one for some time. Still, it wasn't the job that you wanted to take. It was the job that you took because you had no options. Imagine you've been out all day with the sheep. That means all day you have been walking around, keeping the herd together, moving them along, helping any sheep that has a problem. You've been out in the sun. You probably are exhausted. And tonight you've got second shift. So that means you get about four or five hours of sleep. Then, you know, Bill's going to come over, prod you with that dirty prod. Because, you know, for the most part, it's been poking sheep all day. Now he's going to poke you with it because it's your turn to wake up and watch the sheep. So you're trying to get in a little bit of sleep. And then the sky fills with light. They say the, God, the glory of God filled the night air. And this, this person is floating up there. You'd probably be a little scared, right? I mean, this sounds like alien abduction. You are in the middle of a field at the dark of night, and all of a sudden it fills up with light, and there's a guy floating in the sky in front of you. It's the end of the world, or you're going in the ship. One or the other is happening. You're probably a little frightened. The angel speaks to them the same words that he says to Mary, do not be afraid. But then he goes on to say, why? Do not be afraid because I bring you great news. There are good news that will be a great joy for all people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. And look, I'll prove it to you. If you go down there, you will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and laid down in a manger. And then the sky fills with a bunch of other floating men, a whole host of them. And they begin to sing glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth. Peace to those for whom his favor rests. Well, if a bunch of floating men in the sky tell you to go look at something, I think you'd probably go look, right? Either that or this is the greatest bandit scheme to uh, rustle a bunch of sheep ever. And it's, they get to take the sheep just for that amount of work. No, they, they rush. They rush down into Bethlehem. And I, I can only imagine that they just kind of go from house to house looking for a baby. <laughs> Which is a great thing to do in the middle of the night. At last, they find the baby just as this angel had described, and they fall down and worship. Here is the Messiah, 
the one who is supposed to change their world. These are the bottom rung of society. These are the ones whom the Romans kick around and probably the other Jews kick around. These are the bottom. And yet when the Messiah comes, the Messiah comes to them. The Messiah comes to them, or the Messiah, uh, yeah, the first announcement is to them. And so they rush to see this baby. And they are so excited, so filled with this good news. And the word for good news that's used here and everywhere in the Bible is gospel. They are filled with gospel and they run out. And all those people who finally got back to sleep because a bunch of crazy men came running through looking for a baby, wake them up again to say, there's a baby! It's the Messiah. It's the one we have been waiting for for hundreds of years. The one who will make all things right. And so they run around and tell everyone. It wasn't just those men who found out the baby was coming. Someone else noticed too, at least two, and we're going to say three because it's tradition. Three magi, three priests in the Zoroastrian religion, the, the religion of the Persian Empire. Sure, the Persian Empire had fallen to Alexander the Great and now was at war with the Roman Empire. But it was still there. And the Zoroastrians were still there too. And they had been longtime friends of the Jews. Three of their priests looked up and noticed there's something different happening in the stars today. And they studied and they thought, after all, that's what they did. That's what they were paid to do, is to look up and look for changes in the sky to figure out what they mean. And they decided this means that a king of the Jews has been born. And so they jumped on their, well, we'll say camels. We'll assume they rode camels. And they rode from the east towards Jerusalem. This makes sense. You learn that there is a king born, where do you go? The palace. Obviously, it's going to be a prince, right? They get there. They go to the palace. They go up to Herod, and they say, congrats, dad. And Herod's like, what? Really? What are you talking about? And they say, well, we've seen the sign. We saw the sign in the sky that a king of the Jews has been born. And he says, I haven't had any kids lately. This makes no sense. Honey? No? Okay. So he, he goes and he gathers together all of the, the priests, the scholars. The, and he says, I, I need you to look up. A baby has been born who's said to be the king of the Jews. It's not in my house. I need you to figure out where. And they, they start reading through. And they find in Micah that Micah says the Messiah will come in the town of David. That's Bethlehem. That's where David grew up. And so Herod decides, I think I'll catch him. I know I've talked about Herod the Great recently. We've got a lot of new people in here today, so I'm going to just do a really quick recap. Herod the Great did not inherit his throne. 
Instead, he was an usurper. There had been another king there, a, uh, the last of the Hasmonean dynasty. And he managed to play the Hasmoneans off of the Romans and got that guy captured and killed. And because Herod the Great's dad was such good friends with the Romans and the Roman Senate and then the Roman Emperor, Herod managed to get himself installed as the first new king of a new dynasty in Judea. Well, then he went on to go on a building spring spree. He built the new, the refurbished second temple. He built temples for the Romans. He built himself some castles. Um, some of the greatest, biggest works of ancient Judea, if you go to see them today, were probably built by Herod if they weren't built later by the Crusaders or the Byzantine Empire. So... What do usurpers always fear the most? Being usurped. So anytime there's a threat to your, their power, they go try to extinguish it as fast as possible. So he tells those magi, here's where he's supposed to be, and when you find him, let me know. Because I want to go worship him too. I can't crack my knuckles. Threat implied. So they start to head down to Bethlehem. And sure enough, that star reappears in the sky and it directs them to where the baby is. There's actually a lot of guesses how old Jesus is at this point. I am sorry to break any bubbles. Again, there was probably, there was, at least we don't know if there was a donkey or not. And also, the shepherds and the magi were not there at the same time. In fact, they may have stayed and lived in Bethlehem for a couple of years. Joseph had that kind of job. He was, we, we call him a carpenter, but he's an artisan. He is someone who can probably do some carpentry. He probably can do some stonework. Any job you give him, he will make it work. He's got skilled hands, and he's a hard worker from what we know. So, he's probably found work. Maybe he found a little place to buy or rent. Maybe they're staying with some family friends uh, or fa family after, you know, everyone left. Jesus might be two or three years old at this point. But still, when they find this child, they don't even question what they're finding. I mean, after all, they had come looking for a king who sat, was going to sit on a throne. They had come to look for a prince. And they accept this little baby, probably, you know, staying in someone's guest room. Who probably spends his day following his mom around the room, grabbing onto her apron. Probably has fun downstairs playing with the chickens and the sheep. They accept that this little child is going to be a king. Just like that, that shepherd boy who many centuries before was pulled out of the fields and anointed to be king. And they get down and they offer three gifts. Gold. That makes sense, right? Everyone needs gold. I would take some gold. Frankincense. Perfume. Holy perfume that's often given to gods. Hmm, okay, makes sense if you're a king. And myrrh, that's an odd one. 
very symbolic one. Sure, myrrh is also one, but myrrh is usually associated with death. It's a, a special one that's usually rubbed into bodies. Interesting. They stay the night. These, these wise men, these magi who are used to being called upon by kings and emperors and people of great prominence, stay the night in this little house. There they receive a dream and they return to their homeland in their own way. This child has not only now been recognized by those who are at the bottom rung of society, those who are out in the fields working, those who are looked down on by others. They've also, he has also now been recognized by those at the very top, those who watch the stars, who try to peer into God's mind. He has been recognized by all. Of course, Herod is furious when he finds out that the Magi have been left and didn't tell him where. And so he orders that every child, every male boy, I believe it's I got them right here. <laughs> yeah. That every boy aged two, three, and younger should be killed. But God is taking care of things. He told, he told Mary all the way back at the beginning that God will watch over her and the child and protect them. And so he sends a message on to Joseph and says, go, run this very night. Go down to uh, Egypt to safety. There they run down. And they live for some years until Herod passes away and then they return and move on to Nazareth. The story of the Messiah, the story of the person who is to come and raise the kingdom of Jerusalem back up, doesn't begin in the place that it should. It doesn't begin in halls of power, but instead begins in little homes here and there. And it ends not even in Israel. Instead, the nativity story itself really ends in a foreign land where a um, husband and a wife and their little baby have fled to escape persecution and danger. God works in weird ways. We never fully understand until we can step back and look at the picture. God comes to live a life not of luxury and enjoyment, but live a life that other people will experience that anyone can relate to and understand. And so that God lives the lives that we do and understands that for God's self. And so... They ran to Egypt. So they lived in a world where they knew that at any moment they could be killed. And they stayed safe until they could get to the point where they knew they could return home. 
story, the story of Jesus' birth. It started in the temple and it ended in exile and at last returned to home. Every year we reread it. Every year we re-remember it. But every year we're also asked to really consider it. Jesus didn't have to come this way. Jesus didn't have to go through all of these. I mean, God could have just snapped his fingers and everything would be in place. He could have grown up comfortably, never have to left home, not have to be put in a manger. I don't know about you, but I mean, I've, I've, I've had children and... The last place I want to put my child is in a wooden box that, for the most time, has straw covered in animal slobber in it. But that's how he came. That's how it starts. Defying expectations. Defying an expectations of the world. Of everyone who expected this conqueror king to come and set all things right. Instead, comes as a baby, wrapped in spare cloths and an animal's feeding trough. Jesus will keep defying expectations. Jesus will keep doing things that no one thinks that a man of God, let alone God on earth, should be doing. And by doing so, Jesus not only teaches us a new way of living, but Jesus exemplifies a way of that living. A way of living that says, love thy neighbors. As he sits behind a woman whose people have been at war with his for a long time and asks for a cup of water. A man who says that this kingdom and it says, I am the Messiah who's bringing about a new kingdom, but willingly goes to death. A man who says, I will die and be raised again. And sure enough, he does. Doing something that no person has ever done before. A person who walks with us, who talks with us, who cries with us, who laughs with us. And so we come to that manger, looking to see the Christ child, who comes in a way that no God should seem to be born as, who comes in a way that defies all expectations and challenges us to defy them as well. As you go out this Christmas holiday today, I know yesterday was Christmas May you find that the Holy Spirit is moving you to defy the expectations of this world. And may you look into the manger and see the hope in that little child that is given to us. And may you give that hope out to every person you meet.